Speed up with podcast speed up. Rationally Speaking is a presentation of New York City Skeptics, dedicated to promoting critical thinking, skeptical inquiry, and science education. For more information, please visit us at nycskeptics.org. Welcome to Rationally Speaking, the podcast where we explore the borderlands between reason and nonsense. I'm your host, Julia Galef, and with me is today's guest, Professor Greg Caruso. Greg is Associate Professor of Philosophy at SUNY Corning. He's also the co-director of the Justice Without Retribution Network and the founder and editor-in-chief of Science, Religion, and Culture. He's written multiple books and writes for publications like Psychology Today. And one of Greg's main areas of focus is the topic of free will and moral responsibility. So that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. I uh, intend for us to, to tackle a whole cluster of related questions, including uh, if people don't have free will, then can they be said to be morally responsible for their actions? For example, are criminals morally responsible for their crimes? Um, relatedly, of course, what do we mean by the question, uh, do people have free will? And then also the related question, if we as a society collectively decided that free will doesn't exist, would the consequences of that decision be good or bad for society? So, Greg, welcome to Rationally Speaking. Hi, Julia. Hi. Thank you for having me. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Uh, looking forward yeah. to the conversation. So, yeah, uh, Greg, you on this topic, you've described yourself as an optimistic skeptic. Can you right. explain what you mean by that? Well, the first begins with the notion that I'm a skeptic. So by a skeptic, I mean a free will skeptic. Uh -huh. um, and free will skeptics either doubt or deny the existence of free will. Um, so it's a large cluster of views. Um, I'm more of, uh, of the view that we lack free will. So as a free will skeptic, as I'm using the term, it basically maintains that who we are, what we do is ultimately the result of factors beyond our control. And because of this, we lack the kind of uh, moral responsibility um, that would make us truly deserving of praise and blame. And this is in a backwards-looking, non-consequentialist sense. So I, I define free will in terms of a certain type of moral responsibility called basic desert. And as a free will skeptic, I maintain that we lack this kind of free will and by extension, the kind of basic desert moral responsibility that would make us ultimately or truly deserving of praise and blame in a kind of non-consequentialist, backwards-looking sense. Right. And just to clarify for our listeners, that's dessert spelled with just one S, in, this, right. in <laughs> similar to deserving, as opposed to dessert with two S's, similar to, right. you know, chocolate pie. Exactly. Um, and as an optimistic skeptic, then... Um, that essentially maintains that uh, the implications, the uh, consequences of adopting free will skepticism, that is the consequences of denying the existence of free will in this particular kind of moral responsibility, um, for my from my perspective, would be uh, not a negative thing. There's lots of critics out there that maintain that giving up the belief in free will would be harmful for a whole number of reasons I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm -hmm. um, and my view is that it that a life without free will would not be as destructive as many people think, and in fact, in many ways, uh, would be better. So I'm pretty optimistic about the consequences and the implications of giving up the belief in free will. Excellent. 
So I think for a topic like this, it's especially important that we uh, early on clarify our terms. Um, And so I want to go through a taxonomy of different kinds of moral responsibility and see which of those you're pointing at when you talk about moral responsibility or free will. Um, So I'm I'm thinking here of a a famous essay by the philosopher Thomas Nagel in which he talks Mm -hmm. about something called moral luck, which is very similar Mm -hmm. to moral responsibility. And he breaks it down into four types. So the first type he calls resultant moral moral responsibility. And this is uh, basically the question of how do your choices turn out, um, which can which can be a function of things totally beyond your control. So if both Bob and Alice become drunk and then drive, uh, and then a child runs across the road where Bob is driving and Bob ends up killing the child, their choices turned out very differently, but uh, that was sort of, that's resultant moral luck at work there. Um, And then the second category uh, Nagel points out is circumstantial moral responsibility, uh, which is getting at the question of how does your moral responsibility depend on the circumstances in which you find yourself? So if Bob and Alice grow up in two different societies or cultures uh, and Bob's culture uh, has a norm of people drinking a lot uh, in the evenings, then, you know, he sort of has much greater opportunity to do something like drive drunk and end up killing a child than Alice does. Uh, Then the third category is constitutive moral, moral responsibility. Um, which is getting at the question of how does your character, your personality, um, your identity determine how morally responsible you are for your choices. And much of that, uh, much of that constitution is not under your control. It's determined by things like genetics or the environment you grew up in. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe maybe Bob uh, was born with, with a predisposition towards less self-control or he grew up in an environment in which no one really helped him develop that self-control, etc. And so he's more likely to drive drunk. And then the final category of moral responsibility is causal. Um, and that's basically uh, if you if Bob makes a conscious choice to get drunk and then drive, uh, can he still be said to be morally responsible for that, given that the universe is deterministic, um, mm-hmm. uh, given that his choice was determined by all the, the previous states of the universe before that? Um, and this is this is sort of the classic question of free will. Mm-hmm. So so that's that's the rough taxonomy. Those are m- many different ways in which one's moral responsibility could be said to be determined by things outside of one's control. Which of those categories are you trying to point out? Well, the kind of basic dessert moral responsibility I have in mind is a kind of moral responsibility that um, has to do with, are you ultimately accountable um, for the kind of constitutive characteristics of our, of our being? Um, So, it's a good thing that you mentioned this stuff about luck. Uh, Although my arguments against free will typically um, are not based in notions of luck. I I am uh, sort of persuaded by Neil Levy's excellent book. I don't know if you've had a chance to read this called hard luck. No. Um, It's a great title. It's a great book. Um, Hard luck. Why luck undermines. uh, I think it's free will and moral responsibilities, Mm -hmm. the subtitle. Um, And it's basically an issue of constitutive luck that, well, it's, it's, it's a number of different things, actually. I mean, the luck objection when it's raised in the free will debate is typically brought in, um, in terms of circumstantial kind of luck, which is at a particular moment, is there kind of an indeterminacy and can one be, you know, morally responsible for such luck in these kind of individual cases. But I think the bigger problem is constitutive luck, um, in the kind of circumstances in which we're born, the kind of circumstances in which we're placed, the experiences that we have throughout life, the uh, lottery of life that we're given in terms of innate dispositions mm-hmm. and you know uh, propensities, um, 
we're not ultimately accountable for any of those features. And if those features ultimately determine and constitute the kind of moral characters that we have, um, then ultimately, I don't think we're responsible for those moral characters. Um, so, so there's a kind of argument that uh, I think first is sort of given by people like, um, well, it comes up, obviously, as you mentioned in Nagel, and then Galen Strawson, and then followed through to Neil Levy, that it's, you know, luck swallows all. Um, luck swallows everything in terms of what we care about in terms of this kind of responsibility. So uh, my categories of responsibility are slightly different than the ones you mentioned. And in sort of the free will debate, um, the three kinds of responsibility that come up quite often are um, attributability, answerability, and accountability. Um, so attributability um, is, can we attribute a particular, you know, uh, action to an agent? Can we contribute, uh, or sorry, assign, uh, um, say, creativity to an agent? I don't deny attributability at all. I think it's totally consistent with free will skepticism. Answerability is a little different. It's, it's can we hold agents um, to account for their actions? So, for example, if you do something morally wrong, can I ask you your reasons for doing so? Um, Dirk Pierboom has recently spelled out a forward-looking version of answerability that I think is totally consistent with free will skepticism, and I'm absolutely okay with accepting that. Accountability um, or accountable accountability more responsibility is the kind that most aligns with what I'm calling basic dessert, and it's that kind of more responsibility that free will skeptics deny. Um, I would also argue it's that kind of more responsibility that most of us are debating when we're debating the free will issue. So just to make sure I understand your taxonomy, if Bob consciously chose to get drunk, knowing that he was going to have to drive and also knowing that there could that that was unsafe and he was putting other people at risk, we could say that he was answerable for that choice because he made it consciously. You mm -hmm. still wouldn't hold him accountable because the uh, his character that that uh, makes him the kind of person who would willingly take such a risk is not something that mm -hmm. was was determined by him. That's right. And his ability to, you know, focus on his moral reasons or, you know, uh, exert more willpower, all of those things uh, of themselves are caused by features that are outside his control. Um, so, right, exactly. That's the kind of, you could also say he's causally responsible. So I'm okay with that notion of responsibility. Right. Although we would also say that a shark is causally responsible for killing something, but we still wouldn't hold the shark accountable. Exactly. So as long, you know, if it's part of the causal story, part of the causal explanation, and the choice is an important part of that causal story, I'm okay with that kind of responsibility. Mm -hmm. It's the it's the particular kind of moral responsibility that comes up in notions of punishment, reward, uh, you know, um, imprisonment, and P.F. Strassen calls the reactive attitudes. Uh, reactive attitudes like 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 indignation, right, right. Um, yeah, moral blame, anger. Resentment, those Got it. are the famous attitudes that most people point to. So those that's the kind of uh, claim that I'm interested in and whether that kind of uh, do agents have the kind of control and action that would ground that type of moral responsibility. And for me, it's mainly about backwards looking moral responsibility because um, I'm willing to acknowledge that there were there are forward looking reasons to again, engage in more reasoning, hold agents to account, 
and you know my daughter does something that I disapprove of um, there are reasons for me to hold her accountable to show disapproval because I'm looking forward towards you know moral formation reconciliation protection and those are totally consistent in my view with with free, with denying the existence of free will what's not consistent on my view with denying the existence of free will is holding individuals responsible in a purely backwards looking sense um, that and this is what comes up quite often with accounts and justifications for punishment. So, like retributivism is inconsistent with my view because, in general terms, retributivism is backwards looking in its justification for punishment. You know, why throw Harry in jail? Well, Jerry, uh, Harry deserves justly deserves to be punished for what he did. That's backwards looking. Got it. So the yeah. the example with your daughter is interesting because it seems like you're saying. Uh, I, by virtue of punishing my daughter, I can affect her future action, actions. Um, sure. But uh, in saying that she is not, she doesn't have backwards looking moral responsibility, um, or you're not holding her morally responsible in a backwards looking way, it sounds like you're saying that she did not choose. She, she could, she, her past self didn't, was not able to affect her future, her present actions, even though you, your current self can affect her future actions. That's right. I mean, for, you know, there are choices, you know, free will skeptics don't deny choices. We don't, I don't, uh, at least the kind of free will skepticism I defend um, can acknowledge all the important uh, work that compatibilists have done in terms of acknowledging different types of levels of control, reasons responsiveness versus agents that are not reasons responsive. Um, those are all, I think, very important distinctions. I just don't think they're important for the reasons compatibilists think they're important. I think they're important for judging how uh, um, how successful certain types of uh, rehabilitation will be. They're important for determining what forms of punishment are most suitable or what types of sanctions we should uh, um you know, implement for various types of uh, moral transgressions, but they're not important for me to ground the backwards looking blame. So my daughter, you know, she's reasons responsive. Um, so I can deal with her. I could ask her for her reasons for why she did what she did, hopefully with the purpose of her realizing the moral wrong, acknowledging uh, um, maybe a flaw in her own character, a, you know, a kind of commitment to uh, work on that moving forward. That's a different type of moral engagement I would have with her than I would have with someone who, say, is, you know, um, a sociopath or isn't reasons responsive in the same kind of way. Right. Where the sociopath is closer to the shark on the spectrum. That's right. Yeah. Um, somewhere in between yeah. <laughs> my daughter and the shark. Exactly. Well, okay. To expand on my previous point a little bit, I have this sort of simplified model of what's happening when our character and our choices get shaped over time where at each, so let's say I make a choice every second and, you know, maybe that choice is as something as little as whether to um, put down my book or keep reading to, you know, scratch my head or not, etc. But, you know, I'm, I have this sort of set of choices I can choose from each second that I can consciously choose from. And the set of things that are in my choice set is partially determined by things that are not under my control. Like, you know, did someone even give me a book to read mm -hmm. or what society do, am I currently existing in? Um, it's also determined by the results of my previous choices. Um, exactly. And so basically I see like... I will concede that at time T, I don't mm -hmm. have 
a lot of control over what choices are available to me, although I still, I think, have a little bit of control over what choice I choose from within that set. But, you know, I, I grant that many people, people have wildly different um, uh, sets of choices, some of which are like mostly all bad and some some of which are pretty good. Um, so we so I agree that like at time T, I don't have control over the things in that set. But the things in that set are partially, although not fully by any stretch of the imagination, determined by the choices I made at time T minus one and T minus two and so on and so forth. So I just don't I, I agree that like if you condition on the results of all of my past choices, then I have very little I have only a small amount of free will in choosing right now. I just don't see why we should be conditioning on the results of my past choices. I'm willing to condition on the all the things that are not under my control at all those previous T minus two, T minus three uh, choice sets, like the options that my parents gave me or the the ideas I was exposed to, that sort of thing. I just don't think that conditioning away those things fully gets rid of the degree to which I'm consciously making choices that shape my character and therefore ch- shape the consequences of my actions. All right. So let me just try to get a little clearer on, on the concern. So for you, the concern is the forward-looking justification at the moment. Um, is that what you're asking about? Uh, the- I think my concern, I, I think my concern is the conflict between not believing in backwards-looking moral responsibility, but still believing in the forwards-looking moral ability to influence someone's choices. All right, right. So, right, no one, at least I'm not denying uh, degrees of control. So I agree with you that um, at time T1, time T2, um, again, depending on, and a lot of this goes back to the luck factors that you mentioned, um, the circumstances in which I exist in this society, in this culture, in this economic bracket that I exist in, my my level of choices, my degree of control um, might be greater than somebody in a different place in a different set of circumstances with you know fewer options. Um, the question is whether the notion of control at time T1 is enough, in my view, to ground free will or basic desert blame. Um, and so for me, the question comes down to the an issue of, of ultimately responsibility. I mean, I'm almost okay with dropping the debate about free will because sometimes I think people uh, ultimately are attempting to get at different things with yeah. that. I would rather just talk about you know moral responsibility and then just distinguish between what kind of responsibility are we concerned about at that moment in T1. Um, you know, for me, the the uh, um, to deny basic desert moral responsibility is not to say that there are not other conceptions of responsibility that can be reconciled with determinism, chance, or luck, you know, nor is it to deny there are good pragmatic reasons for maintaining certain systems of punishment and reward. It's instead to say that to hold people truly or, or ultimately morally responsible for their actions, again, in this non-consequentialist desert-based sense, would be to hold them responsible for the results of things that are morally arbitrary. For what's ultimately beyond their control, which, partial. in my view, is partial. fundamentally unfair. And un- so, where's the non-partial part? Well, uh, the so the partial part is I let's say you know Bob was only exposed once to the idea uh, of fairness, and Alice was exposed uh, fifty times to the idea of fairness um, because her parents just you know cared more about it than Bob's parents did, and he heard about it from a friend or something like that. Bob and Alice still have the choice of. Uh, whether to consider that 
concept of fairness and whether to attempt to apply it to some degree in their life. And they they also, like, let's assume they both make some small attempt at trying to be fair. They both have the choice of, of whether to try to repeat that action until it becomes more of a habit and more of a part of their character. So I would agree that because of things under not under their control, Alice was given a, a better shot. But that doesn't fully remove the degree to which they have some control over the extent to which they end up with a, a justice sense in their character. So, okay, uh, Bob is less susceptible to concerns or considerations of fairness. I guess here's my question. Um, so let's say Alice is a you know cognitive cognizer. She's very self-reflective. Um, she's more receptible to certain types of lessons, right? So this lesson or uh, exposure to principles of fairness have had more of an influence on Alice than they have on Bob. Bob's more of a cognitive misser. Um, he it doesn't self-reflect, um, doesn't bring up those you know, concerns about fairness and maybe he's less acceptable to the moral lessons and uh, experiences that Alice had. The question for me, I guess, would be back to whether that is something that is within their control. If the cognitive abilities that make Alice more of a cognitive cognizer, more receptive to principles or concerns about fairness um, that have shaped her to, 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 to have that kind of, you know, psychology, are those factors that she controlled. And if not, um, I think it's just a regress argument. I think we go back to the psychological character of those individuals that make them more susceptible to those types of reasons or less receptible to those types of reasons. Well, again, I would say they're they're both partially responsible. So there's some influence of genetics, to be sure. There's some influence of what do their parents encourage or discourage? Um, uh, what role models do they have in the social groups around them, etc.? But even so, each of them are still... Their character is partially shaped by the conscious choices that they make under the influence of all those other factors over time. So if I, you know, you can say, well, uh, Julia has less self-control and it's not her fault, therefore, that she, you know, didn't pass up the third drink. Um, but the fact that I have less self-control is partially the result of genetics, but partially the result of conscious choices that I made many, many times in the past that developed this habit. And so I don't see why those choices that I made aren't part of the calculus of my moral responsibility, as opposed to that, that calculus just including my choice right now after you've already conditioned away the things that determined my degree of self-control. Okay, so this is this is really good. So thank you. This is help clarify the, the issue. Sorry, that was a long way to get at this point. No, 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 this is great. So, all right, there's a couple, a couple of questions maybe then for me first. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with Robert Kane's view. So he's a libertarian, um, but not a spooky libertarian. He's not an Asian, <laughs> Asian causal libertarian. He, okay. his, his version of libertarianism uh, could be consistent with naturalism. It could fit into a naturalistic worldview. Um, so he holds a kind of event causal indeterminist account. Um, and he has this notion of uh, self-forming actions. He calls them SFAs. Um, uh -huh. So his view is that, and maybe this is something that you're getting at, that um, I don't necessarily have to be responsible um, at, say, time T1. That is, or I, I shouldn't say that. I, I shouldn't have to have a kind of um, ultimate freedom or, uh, or free will at time T1 to be held responsible. All that's required is at some earlier point in creating my own character, and for, again, Kane, these are the, the SFAs, the self-forming actions. Those were actions that uh, um, were not causally determined, and at that moment are relevant in determining the character that you are. Um, so for example, I might do something now that's totally consistent with my, you know, my, my moral character, my predispositions. And in fact, you, you know, we often anticipate people to act consistent with their nature. Um, 
But at that moment, it could all be, you know, completely deterministic. For Cain, you can't have ultimate responsibility unless some point in the past then you were responsible for creating yourself in one of these moments of self-forming actions. I don't know if you're sneaking in at a moment in Alice's past or Bob's past, one of these self-forming actions or not, um, which... Oh, I wasn't intending to sneak them in. I was intending to point at them okay. and shine a light on them directly okay, and so... say that there are many, many, many such self-forming actions. Although I was completely... I was conceding that that there are many other things in addition to self-forming actions that determine my character or disposition at time T. Um, and, and that many of those other things are not under my control. So then the question for me would be what's needed for these self-forming actions. So Cain is a libertarian. So Cain... Kane's view is that these self-forming actions themselves are inconsistent with determinism um, and maybe even huh. issues of luck. Um, I, I don't know if you're that type of, of a... I don't think or I you am. Want, you want to hold on to some kind of compatibilist notion, I think. Yes, yes. Um, but then my concern is what, you know, uh, how do you maintain the notion or how do you make sense of a notion of a self-forming action totally consistent um, with determinism, let's say? Um so I don't know if this helps or maybe this just clouds the waters. <laughs> let, me, let, me, let me try this. Um, so this is actually based on a, a true story. My, my daughter's seven. Um, and so she just finished first grade. And uh, before she started this year, a friend of a friend, you know, told my wife that, you know, there, you know there's going to be this boy that's in her class and you might want to watch out for this boy because um, this boy was in um, her son's daycare uh, before first grade. And he tried to engage in a game. I'll put game in quotes here with her mm -hmm. son. And it was an inappropriate game that involved showing private parts and touching. OK, so uh -huh. some sort of you know, inappropriate kind of sexual game. Um, now, as a father, my primary concern for my daughter's safety, I want to sort of isolate this young boy from my son, my daughter, or at least when they're on the playground, make sure that there's proper supervision. Um, but later we found out that this boy himself was shown this quote-unquote game by a 15-year-old neighbor. Okay, so this 15-year-old yeah. boy who left, lived next door essentially sexually molested this young boy. Um, and told him it was a game and now he is trying to show and play this game with other people mainly other boys um my initial reaction to that case and when hearing upon this was not anger was not moral indignation um it was sorrow right because in a certain sense i see very clearly the causal connections in this kid's case right i mean it's pretty easy in in this circumstance to point to the experience he had with his 15 year old neighbor for why he now has these set of beliefs and desires and you know preferences and and engages in these certain sets of actions um now of course when you age that five that you know that 7 year old boy and turn him into a 40 year old we, you know people want to castrate him and 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 look to you know, other features that cloud the waters. Um, but there's always a causal story to be pointed to, right? I mean, even in, even in horrific crimes, there is a causal story. And if you look deeply enough, you'll, you know, generally find it. Um, I guess the question is, if you were not to smuggle in sort of this, you know, indeterminist or uh, libertarian notion of self-forming actions, what's the miraculous moment at which this seven-year-old becomes morally responsible or accountable in the backwards looking sense that he deserves retribution or retributive punishment. Um, uh, if 
he ultimately is the character he is because of the family he's been born into, the genetics, the environment. And now these new sets of experiences, namely the experiences with his neighbor, have created and caused in him a certain new set of psychological propensities and, and character traits. Um, I, I don't see, for me, on a completely consistent compatibilist account, um, room for the kind of moral responsibility that I'm interested in. But what, how would you... Well. Well, I think one reason that people react with sorrow, um, in st- oh, not everyone, but more people react with sorrow in the case of the uh, the seven year old um, than in the case of a thirty seven year old is is because the seven year old has less of the conscious reflective um, uh, the, less ability to to consciously reflect on his actions and the consequences of those actions and whether his reasons for those actions are justified, et cetera, et cetera, than does the thirty seven year old. Excellent. Um, yeah. I mean, and so, and so, I, I agree that by the time, so if the kid makes this choice as a seven year old, which we mostly want to say is not his fault, um, I agree that that sort of sets up that is the one of the first steps in setting up a pattern of behavior and a character, a disposition that will be ingrained by the time he is 37 and that therefore you might want to say well you should therefore carry for carry forward the sorrow you felt at his seven-year-old self and feel that same sorrow and not anger at his 37 year old self um and i just think that's only partially true like i think that even though those actions that he was mostly not responsible for as a seven-year-old have helped shape his 37 year old disposition i think at each stage uh from seven to 37 he had some ability to get onto a different path. He had some increasing amount of conscious reflection that he could have chosen to engage um, or maybe considered engaging and didn't. uh, And that therefore he is partially, like his conscious choices have partially shaped his 37-year-old disposition in addition to the things back at age seven that he wasn't responsible for. Okay, good. So you put me in an uncomfortable position to defend a 37-year-old child molest. (laughs) Well, I'm also uh, right, defending a 37-year-old more than most I people I should would, say, so maybe, both... hopefully later, I'll get to uh, my account of, of how I would deal with a person who's a danger to society. So oh, I'm not yes. Gonna, no, I, def- yeah. I definitely want to get yeah, to that. Yeah, but later, so right, later. So just I, spend right. a few more minutes I don't wanna, on this. I don't want to let a 37-year-old child molester run free. So that's not my view. But Understood. I promise I won't end the episode before you get a chance no, no, to no, explain good, that good. you don't want to uh, let... But, yeah. right, so, good. On your account, and, you know... But I think we're generally in agreement, but the, the points of disagreement are so at each moment, right, from the seven year old to the 37 year old self, um, where they engage in this kind of, you know, conscious deliberation. And I totally inconsistent with my view that people engage in these kinds of conscious deliberations and, and reflective processes. Um, the question, though, or the phrase you use that he could have chosen to engage in uh, in a kind of reflective process or not. Or he could have chosen to act differently at a particular moment, given the conscious set of reasons that stood before him. That's where I think it gets dicey for a compatibilist. I mean, Kane Kane has his you know uh, magic sauce because you could just bring in these <laughs> moments of indeterminacy that screen out you know prior causal chains. But let's assume for the moment we're talking about a deterministic universe, um, and you're a compatibilist, and we're trying to reconcile that with the 37 year old. I would say that at each of those moments, he could not have really deliberated otherwise, or the outcome of that conscious set of factors at time T1, T2, T3, et cetera, um, would be determined by the prior set of causal and conscious sets of deliberation combined with, you know, innate 
sets of character traits and previous experiences and, you know, life circumstances and all the rest. So at, say, of any particular moment, um, I agree with you on this, and th- there is definitely a clear disanalogy between the seven-year-old and the 37-year-old, and you hit on that, which is at the moment, the seven-year-old doesn't know the uh, the moral nature of the act, whereas the 37-year-old presumably clearly does. Um, so we have a, more of a desire to want to blame the 37-year-old because they satisfy at least one condition for moral responsibility, a kind of epistemic condition that they know the action is wrong, where the seven-year-old is lacking that kind of condition. Um, but then I don't think that that condition is enough for the the moral. So let's say he recognizes in himself this desire um, Oh, it's such a horrible thing to have to defend. But he recognizes in himself a sort of desire to engage in this act with a, a young child. Um, and you could even bring in a kind of Frank Ferdian kind of view here. He, he disapproves of that lower order desire in himself. Um, and uh, and um, so his second order desire is not in line with his first order desire. I think the question of whether his second order disapproval is capable of checking his low order desire is a matter of a whole bunch of psychological factors that themselves are again outside the control of the agent. They've been shaped ultimately by factors that Bob can't control. Um, well, they're, they're outside of the control of the agent at this, at time T, but I still disagree that they're outside of the control of the, of the agent at all the previous times. I think they're partially in his control, but I feel like I'm, I'm sort of repeating myself now. I'm sorry. Why don't you. So go- maybe can I ask you to spell out what you mean by control? Uh, I think I mean, um, uh, if someone has the conscious awareness of, uh, a choice that he could make of an option, um, and he chooses consciously to either take that action or not take that action, then I say that he had, uh, at least partial control over his choice of that action. And I say at least partial because, uh, uh, because, his choice is, is, it may be conscious, but it's also, you know, significantly influenced by his environment and by his disposition, which is itself the result of previous choices exactly or similar to this one. I think so. It's up to this point. A conscious choice is really the at the at the core of what I'm calling par- having partial control over one's actions. Yeah. So there might be a couple things we could touch on here. So, but so for me, I, I, I'm almost fine with all of that and. Uh, again, I, I said earlier, I don't deny degrees of control or even if you want to use the word degrees of autonomy. I just disagree that control equals free will or control equals uh, the or Right. The, that was the difference between answerable and accountable. Right. So so I'm not sure. Um, I, I agree that, you know, uh, there's difference differences in degrees of control. And, you know, Dennett touches on this quite often between, you know, me and some some creature lower on the phylogenetic scale. Right. I mean, Clearly, to deny that would be sort of absurd. Um, but what I don't think is enough in these compatibilist accounts of control is that the control itself, um, or or the the degrees of control themselves, are ultimately you know determined by f- factors that are outside the, the initial or ultimate control of the agent. So the agent has a certain set of causal capacities in that moment. There's a certain set of options. Uh, He has certain rational and conscious abilities to deliberate through the choices. That does equal control. I'm okay with that. But that level of control for me is not sufficient. And and I guess that's where the main disagreement comes down to. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah. So I feel like we we have made 
uh, some substantial amount of progress uh, on on this part of the question. Uh, and I'm I suspect we're not going to fully converge. Uh, so I'm tempted. Well, as people almost never do on this topic, I'm tempted to move on to the question the, that third question in the cluster I was pointing out, sure. which is it. Ha- what would the consequences be if society uh, basically agreed with you or and, you know, I'm I'm like I'm closer to your view than the typical member of society is. So mm-hmm. your answer is like is still quite relevant, even if everyone just agreed with me. Right. So there are numbers of uh, areas we can go into here, but the one that I've been working on a lot lately has to do with punishment and what to do with, say, dangerous criminals. Um, So, you know, when you look at different justifications for punishment, they generally fall into these camps that I mentioned earlier, backwards looking justifications and forwards looking. So if you ask, why should we punish, you know, Bob, one reason would be he deserves it. That's backwards looking. Um, and that's what retributive punishment is. It's a kind of payback for one's moral wrongs. It, it's ultimately saying that the agent justly deserves to be punished for the uh, moral wrongs that they've done. Um, there's a different answer that some people give, and it's generally a forward-looking, you know, why punish Bob? Well, you know, it deters others, it makes us safer. Those are generally forward-looking justifications. Um, I have one particular account that's a, that's a kind of forward-looking account, um, uh, but it's not a typical consequentialist or deterrence account. So I call it the public health quarantine model. Um, and it's and it's built off of, uh, to give credit to Dirk Piraboom, it's built off of his initial um uh, analogy between um, uh, uh, incapacitation and quarantine. So, so just you know, the basic idea is that for free will skeptics, criminals are not morally responsible for their actions in the basic dessert sense because essentially nobody is. Um, but then you think many carriers of dangerous diseases are not more responsible in this or any other sense for for uh, contracting a disease. Uh, so say I get on a plane to go to a conference and I contract Ebola uh, or some other communicable disease. I haven't done anything wrong. I don't deserve to be punished. I don't say deserve to have my liberty removed. Nonetheless, most people would agree that we are justified in or permitted to quarantine that individual for the safety of society. And we're permitted to to quarantine that individual without having to appeal to basic desert, just rewards, just punishment. Um, And so the analogous view for dangerous criminals would be an incapacitation account based on self-defense, essentially. Um, that we can incapacitate dangerous criminals on the same grounds that we can quarantine uh, people who have communicable or, or uh, contagious diseases, uh, namely on the grounds of self-defense and defense of others, without having to appeal to backwards-looking you know, uh, blame, uh, concepts like just desserts, um, or retributivism. And so my view starts there, and then it broadens out to a much more holistic view based in certain uh, uh, conceptions of um, healthcare ethics or public health ethics. Um, and the advantage of bringing in public health ethics here is that the focus gets reoriented towards prevention and social justice issues. So when you think of like healthcare, uh, sorry, public health institutions like the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, or the Food and Drug Administration, or the EPA, um, primary function is preventative. It's to prevent foodborne illnesses or to prevent pandemics. And when they uh, 
have to use quarantine, say, with the CDC, they've already failed in their primary function, right? I mean, quarantine is a fallback. It's, it, you know, it's not the right. preferred... It's uh, the, the pound of cure. Right. It's not the, the, the preferred approach toward dealing to, with communicable diseases. You want to prevent outbreaks. Um, so the orientation in the criminal justice system towards punishment and the obsession with justifying punishment, um, and I think largely the retributive impulses that drive, at least in America, the desire for punishment, has led to like mass incarceration problems and extreme, uh, you know, um, disproportionate, uh, you know, uh, percentages of the population being incarcerated, very punitive forms of punishment, very harsh forms of punishment, and very counterproductive forms of punishment that don't achieve our desired ends, like reducing recidivism, making us safer, etc. Um, so in terms of money, resources, focus, the free will skeptic and someone who adopts this sort of public health quarantine model would put a lot of focus and, and sort of the primary uh, moral feature of the criminal justice system, just like public health institutions should be preventative, should be to address systemic causes of crime, the kind of causal uh, determinants of crime, you know, poverty, uh, educational inequity, lack of opportunity. Um, I mean, we know that these things have a effect, effect, uh, have an effect on individuals, drive statistics on crime, just like they do on health. So we know that obesity rates and type 2 diabetes are much higher in terms of percentages among certain populations. We know that that's often tied to systemic racism and, and uh, inequalities uh, within the system. And so the desire for both public health and public safety would be to address those uh, uh, social justice issues, the, justice, the issues of inequality um, uh, that are based largely, again, on con contingencies of birth. Um, I just happen to be born into a race, uh, into a gender, into a socioeconomic background that gives me advantages um, in terms of health outcomes in our society. Uh, but none of that's deserved. Um, and so one of the big differences, I think, between retributive approaches to punishment is that it's individualistic. It focuses on taking the individual, placing full responsibility there, and then seeking out justifications for punishment at that level. Whereas my approach would be to look more holistically at the causes of crime, try to address them before they they lead to certain types of outcomes. Um, because on my view, in the end, the lottery of life is not always fair. Um, and addressing mm -hmm. them there would be both more humane, more effective, and in my view, more justified. Yeah. Um, so, so I would throw it that 37 year old, um, or at least would, uh, incapacitate, separate that 37 year old until, uh, until we could say, you know, uh, work towards rehabilitation and and to the point at which uh, we view that that individual was uh, no longer a threat to, say, young children. Um, so, you know, I, my view is not going to let criminals just run free. I have an account on how to deal sure. with criminal behavior. Uh, but, yeah, I'll let you jump in. Well, so one common point that people make about this is that having harsh punishments um, and to some extent treating criminals like they deserve punishment is actually forward-looking because it deters future crime. Do you uh, do you sort of disagree that harsh punishments deter future crime, or um, or do you oh, good, uh, good. agree that they do, but still think we should say that the criminal doesn't deserve it? Well, let me let me try to see if I can sidestep the issue and then tell me if I'm allowed to or not. Okay. Uh, I mean, my answer would be that um, this is you know part of the reason why I reject a deterrence model. So my view is not a deterrence model because my concern with deterrence models is that they can justify or at least 
they seem that they have a problem with blocking very punitive forms of punishment. Mm-hmm. Um, and they also run the risk of using individuals, the use objection, um, you know, say throwing an innocent person in jail because it successfully deters, you know, larger quantities of crime. Um, right. You know, my view would be able to block those type of cases because they can't be justified on my model. Um, you can't, throw an innocent person in jail because on the uh, account that I defend, that person presents no potential harm to society, the innocent person. So just like I couldn't throw someone who doesn't carry a communicable disease in quarantine, um, I can't throw someone in jail um, to deter others from from punishment. So I think it has an advantage over traditional deterrence models. Right. Your objective function then is something like minimize future crime under the constraint of not doing anything that people don't deserve. Well, I don't know about deserve. So I have a so I have a principle, sort of a conflict principle. I call it the I call it the conflict principle. It says that punishment is only uh, justified when a it's in line with something like uh, John Stuart Mill's harm principle, and b is uh, follows the, uh, in accordance with what I call the principle of least infringement, which is that it takes the least uh, intrusive form of uh, of, of uh, sanctions that are that. Um, are needed to achieve public health and safety. Um, so just like I wouldn't throw someone in quarantine for a common cold, although it does present somewhat of a risk to society, many of the things we currently uh, imprison people for should be reconsidered, I think. We imprison people for very low-level uh, crimes. Um, we imprison people for uh, outcomes of addiction, mental health issues, things that would all be dealt with much, uh, I think, more effectively within uh, different systems of, of help and rehabilitation and uh, social support systems. Um, so the least restrictive portion is important. So that sort of blocks for me certain excessively punitive form. Like I might be able to cane you in public and that might be a very effective deterrent. I mean, you know, people don't spit on the street in certain societies where we cane people publicly, but I couldn't justify that on my view. Uh, whereas a deterrence person might say, yeah, let's go for public caning if it is effective. And they may argue that there are reasons to think it's not effective, but if it turned out it would be, then that should be their preferred position. Whereas I still have a way of uh, saying that we shouldn't treat individuals uh, in that way. Just like we hold people in quarantine, we have a moral duty while we hold them in quarantine to treat them for their disease um, and not to uh, make their lives uh, unbearable, uh, to treat them humanely. And so I would say the same thing for people we incapacitate, that um, we have a moral obligation to try to rehabilitate those people, unlike we currently do in our criminal justice system. Um, And we have a duty to treat them humanely with respect um, and in certain ways that are inconsistent with our current system. So, you know, the way we use solitary confinement and the excessive means in which we put people 23 to 24 hours a day in lockup for sometimes decades um, is. Yeah. Did you hear about the prison system in, I'm sorry to interrupt you briefly. Did you hear about the prison system in, I think it was Atlanta or outside of Atlanta that uh, they were refusing to put air conditioning in their prison cells, even, you know, in the heat of summer, even though I think the the state or local government (laughs) had voted to give them funding for it. Uh, So they were explicit, like they, there could be no other motivation than just wanting their prisoners to suffer more. Uh, That's right. I, and, on, you know, I know many good, uh, uh, well-meaning retributivists who would say, oh, I'm all for reform too. Like that's just inhumane. But my problem is that the 
retributivist in theory who holds you know proportionality principles that say the punishment should be proportionate to the wrong done um isn't the kind of person who implements these systems. And so the retributive impulse, I think, is, as you point out, I don't know if it's Atlanta, um, the retributive Alabama uh, is the retributive impulse is to make conditions as harsh as possible for these people. I mean, there was another example in the UK where they banned uh, books for prisoners. They, they, it was a ban the book movement um, that Uh. essentially, you know, wanted to deprive prisoners of certain types of uh, luxuries, right? Essentially make the conditions as harsh as possible. So people don't want to go to prison. Um, It's a very retributive impulse, but it's exactly an odds of both rehabilitation and self-interest. I mean, just out of pure self-interest, we know that that's not going to reduce rates of recidivism. I mean, people coming out with no new skills, you know, no rehabilitation, no work training, no educational opportunities, and be deprived books in the process um, is not going to make us safer. I mean, the U.S. system, you know, not only has 25% of the world's prisoners, the highest rate of incarceration known as, we only have 5% of the world's population, but we have, we house 25% of the world's prisoners. We also have the highest rate of recidivism. We have, I think it's 76% or higher than 76% of prisoners are uh, rearrested within the first five years of release. God, that's depressing. All of that is so depressing. Now look at Norway. Yeah, Norway has a recidivism rate of 20%. They imprison 10 times fewer people than we do. So for every uh, 100,000 people in the U.S., we imprison about 700 people. In Norway, for every 100,000, they imprison 70. Um, so far fewer people are brought into the system. They focus on a, on a model that's essentially geared towards rehabilitation. It's not you know, completely my system, but it's much more along the lines of a system that is geared towards, uh, you know, uh, rehabilitation, um, reintegration. um, And although they probably haven't completely relinquished blame, they often view uh, criminal behavior as as a kind of failure of the whole society and not just the individual. So that is closer to the a view in which the individual's uh, actions aren't totally the result of their own individual free will. That's right. And there's a lot of Asian cultures that have this sort of tendency, too, where, um, you know, it's a shame on the family, per se, for example, um, mm-hmm. if they're, if a child does something wrong, because parents see themselves as, you know, important causal <laughs> uh, features in, in shaping the young child. So when the young child does something wrong, they believe it reflects on, on, mm-hmm. on their parenting. Um but Norway, Norway has, you know, supermax prisons with, you know, no barbed wire, with the access to knives, with shrubbery, all of the things that don't exist in our prisons. Um, they have much lower rates of recidivism, um, much better outcomes. And for example, the highest, um, I think it's 27 years, um, the highest uh, prison sentence you could get for any crime, and this really pushed the credulity of the people um, when that, remember that uh, shooting of that guy at the children's uh, camp a number of yeah, years back, the yeah. government, um, that really stressed their, or put it, put a test their retributive impulses yeah. uh, because, you know, that's a hard case. Uh, but the, the max sentence you could give is 25 years. Yeah. Wow. Um, and then what they do is after that period of time, um, they reassess the danger that individual uh, post society, have they been rehabilitated or not? Do they represent a continued risk? And if, if they do uh, re, uh, represent a, a continued risk, they, they could add five-year increments. But there's a mandatory reevaluation process that has to mm-hmm. occur. Unlike prisoners in our systems that often um, are just deprived uh, hearings and any chance of parole, 
for life mm-hmm. um, and are not cases are not reviewed. They're not um, reconsidered. We don't look at individual uh, uh, details um, and all the same thing with, you know, mandatory sentencing. It's removed the, uh, you know, the ability of judges to look at the circumstances between individuals and what might work for one may not work for another. Um, so uh, we, we are a little bit over time, but uh, I think, before we close, I want to invite you to tell our listeners what the Justice Without Retri- uh, sorry Justice Without Retribution Network is up to, uh, and if there's any way they can get involved. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so the uh, this is a network that um, we we recently founded. Um, actually, uh, Elizabeth Shaw at the University of Aberdeen School of Law held a conference uh, two years back with the title Justice Without Retribution. And after that conference, um, a bunch of us decided to found this network. So the co-directors are myself, Dirk Puraboom, um, uh, Liz- uh, uh, Elizabeth Shaw, and Farah Foucault at the University of Ghent. Um, and what we want to do is bring together uh, experts from different fields, neuroscience, law, philosophy, psychology, um, all to investigate whether non-retributive approaches toward uh, you know, criminal punishment are uh, ethically uh, defensible and whether they're justified. And so we held this one conference in uh, in um, Aberdeen, and then we just had a conference at Cornell University with um, both retributivists and non-retributivists. So we, we want to include as many perspectives in the tent as possible and, and open up a line of engagement. And our hope is to uh, continue to foster workshops, produce maybe a number of uh, um, edited collections, hopefully get continued engagement we're looking for um funding uh mm-hmm. and we 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 had a few grants but we're hoping to, to land maybe a much larger grant that would sustain a multi-year project where we could uh you know fund some research in this area bring together experts from different areas policy people philosophers academics neuroscientists to address it from multiple perspectives um hopefully with the um outcome being that we affect some policy change excellent yeah well, I encourage our listeners to check out Greg's website, gregcrusoe.com, which we'll link to on the podcast site. Uh, it has uh, links from there to find out more about the Justice Without Retribution Network. Uh, and you can also check out Greg's papers and books on the topic of, of free will and moral responsibility. So with that, let's wrap up this conversation and move on to the Rationally Speaking Pick. Welcome back. Every episode, we invite our guest on Rationally Speaking to introduce the pick of the episode. That's a book or website or movie or something that has influenced his or her thinking in some way. So, Greg, what's your pick for today's episode? I'm going to cheat and name two here. Eh, <laughs> um, that happens. <laughs> the uh, first is Dirk Pureboom's Living Without Free Will. I think that book um, probably was the most influential book on my thinking uh, um, that I've read. And it was really the one that drew me into the uh, free will debate. And it's also the one that largely shapes my thinking to this day about optimistic skepticism. So um, I really highly recommend that book. It goes through how one can adopt this perspective and what it means for you know interpersonal relationships, morality, um, punishment, and a whole number of other issues. The other 
book would be by Bruce Waller. Um, and he has a number of books, but the one that is really sticks in my mind and has influenced me the most. This is book against moral responsibility. Mm-hmm. And um, although we disagree on certain, certain small features of his account, um, his, his views on moral responsibility have probably been second to prayer room, the most important in shaping my thinking. Um, so those two philosophers, Dirk Pirabum and Bruce Waller, and those two books are books I would highly recommend for anyone that wants to know more about the kind of position I defend and what someone in my camp would say about things that I may not have answered for you today. Um, and that really uh, go deep into the systematic uh, system of more responsibility set of practices and what an alternative perspective would look like. Great. Well, Greg, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having you on the show. And uh, as I said, people should check out gregcrusoe.com. Um, and Greg, did you say you have another book or a volume that you're working on now that'll be coming out soon? Yes. The uh, next project that's coming out is a co-edited collection with Owen Flanagan called Neuroexistentialism. And the subtitle is Meaning, Morals, and Purpose in the Age of Neuroscience. Excellent. We were just, uh, Sean Carroll and I were just talking on the previous Ah. episode about how we really need more isms. (laughs) So that's a worthy addition. He's going to be one of the contributors along with (laughs) Patricia Churchland and just a whole host of amazing people. Great. Well, Greg, thanks again. uh, And I hope to get to chat with you more soon. Thank you very much, Julia. This concludes another episode of Rationally Speaking. Join us next time for more explorations on the borderlands between reason and nonsense. The Rationally Speaking podcast is presented by New York City Skeptics. For program notes, links, and to get involved in an online conversation about this and other episodes, please visit rationallyspeakingpodcast.org. This podcast is produced by Benny Pollock and recorded in the heart of Greenwich Village, New York. Our theme, Truth, by Todd Rundgren, is used by permission. Thank you for listening.